Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message. Okay, hey, for those of you who are new at Crosspoint this morning, welcome. We're so glad you're here. Uh, we don't always show Bill Mayer, but this is the second week in a row that we've shown Bill Mayer. Um, we are in a teaching series, and this is uh, week five of the teaching series uh, called Skeptics Welcome. I'm going to get rid of these keys because I will play with them, and that will be annoying. Thanks, Karen. Um, so uh, in this series, we, we've been looking at some of the, the objections, some of the questions that people uh, often raise uh, in regard to the Christian faith. And, uh, you know, some of the topics we've covered in the last uh, number of weeks is, is belief in God reasonable? Uh, is it arrogant to believe in one truth? Uh, how can a good God allow suffering? And, and then last week we talked about, uh, was Jesus just a myth or a legend? And uh, our goal in this is that wherever you're at in, in your spiritual journey, maybe you're investigating Christianity, uh, maybe there's some hurdles in the Christian faith that you've had really a difficult time kind of getting over, uh, objectionable hurdles. Um, or, or maybe you're just saying, hey, you know what, I've always wanted to seek out answers to some of these questions. Uh, our goal is and our hope is, is that this series ultimately will be helpful to you as we explore these topics together. And uh, if you haven't noticed this week, our question is, how can I believe when Christians have done so much harm? So we're going to be talking about harm uh, Christians have done in the past. We're going to be talking about hypocrisy of Christian uh, believers as well. And it's all wrapped up together. Uh, the reality is that, is that people have done things in the name of Jesus that have eroded their trust in the Christian faith. Okay, so uh, historically we read about the Crusades, we read about uh, the Inquisition, we read about, say, the Salem witch trials, uh, anti-Semitism, Catholics at war with Protestants, Protestants at war with Catholics, Anabaptist persecutions, and the list goes on, etc., etc., etc. Even today, I mean, we have televangelist scandals uh, priests harming children. We have pastors, uh, mainline pastors who have had moral failures. Uh, you might be here today, and you may have, been, may have had your own personal experience with Christians who um, have been very, very hypocritical. And they may have even hurt you. They may have even harmed you in some significant way. And you, you may have this question. You may have this question in your mind that is an obstacle for you coming to faith in Christ or, or believing in God or, any, or, or maybe even just simply being part of that tribe. Because when you think about that tribe, and these are the representatives of that tribe, you might think to yourself today, I don't want nothing to do with that. I think it leaves many of us agreeing with Mahatma Gandhi when he said this. He says, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Uh, a number of years ago, I, I had a friend of mine uh, who had an experience in a church. Uh, he went and he played for a Christian hockey team, okay? Um, so the team was all Christians, quote-unquote, and uh, they were playing in a league with other Christian hockey teams. And he was a good hockey player. He was an experienced hockey player. He would played on a number of different teams. Uh, he'd been to a lot of red-eye tournaments, and he'd, uh, um, yeah, he'd, he'd played on, uh, he, he, he was a good player. Anyway, he said to me, he said, you know, that team that I played on was the worst team that I'd ever played for. And he says, not skill-wise. They were really, really good players. He said, but, but they were nasty out on the ice. He said, they were mean. They were chippy. 
Uh, they got into fights all the time, he says. I've never played on a team before that got in so many fights. He says it, one night it was so bad. He said there were fights on the ice, you know, bench clearing, gloves dropped, people hammering on each other. Refs broke it up, called the game, okay? At the end of the game, he says, I was in the locker room with all these other Christians. He says and they got up and they went down the hallway to the other locker room and they continued the fight. He says that's how difficult it was. And he, had, he said this, he says, why would I want to be a Christian <clears throat> when they behave in that way? <coughs> He's asking the question that we're asking today is, how can I believe when Christians have done so much harm or Christians have um, been so hypocritical? Now, this is probably why the reason why I, I really don't want to form a Christian sports team uh, <laughs> that represents Crosspoint because I'm really afraid of what's going to happen. Uh, Maybe. Maybe I'm just a little bit gun-shy. I'm sure we'll all have perfect good behavior uh, in forming a, a sports team. But uh, it does raise the question, how can I believe when Christians have done so much harm? Well, it's a good question. It's a really good question. It's a question a lot of people are asking. And so how do we respond to it? How do we respond to this objection that is out there? This morning, I want to invite you to consider five things. I want to just put out five considerations for you um, as, we, as we think about this question because it is a really good question. Here's the first consideration. First consideration is this, is that Jesus himself condemns hypocrisy. Jesus condemns hypocrisy. Let me just, I, I think this shouldn't be a surprise to anybody. If you read Jesus' teachings in the Gospels, it's literally littered with different examples where he is speaking against hypocrisy among people. Here, let me give you an example. Matthew chapter 23, verse 27. Here's what Jesus says. He's, woe, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you Hypocrites, you are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, you're full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. Jesus doesn't mince any words here, okay? Doesn't mince any words. In the, orig in the original language, that word hypocrisies, uh, hypocrisy uh, comes from the Greek word, which is hypocrites. And it's actually a word that was used by the Greeks in their drama, in their theater. It literally means to put on a mask. It means to pretend to be something you're not. Uh, it, it, to put on a facade, to, to cover up. But it also carries with it this idea of behaving in ways that are contrary to your alleged beliefs. So there's this idea of this, this duplicity that's caught up in hypocrisy. Pretending to be one thing and yet being something completely different. Now, what this means is that Jesus actually stands on the same side as those who are against the hypocrisy of Christ's followers. Jesus agrees that when his followers live contrary to his lives and teachings, that there's a problem. And what that means then is if, if we're followers of Jesus, we should stand on the same side as Jesus in this issue, in this debate. We also should be deeply bothered by the hypocrisy of Christians. Uh, and, and we should also be deeply bothered by the hypocrisy and the harm that is done by our own lives. So that's the first consideration. Here's the second one is that Jesus anticipated counterfeits. Jesus anticipated counterfeits. Let's, let's look at again at something Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in, in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. 
So what Jesus seems to be saying here is that, is that not everybody who claims to be a Christ follower is, in fact, a Christ follower. So you can adopt a lot of the behaviors of a Christian. Uh, you can get really good at the language of Christianese, right? But at the end of the day, it might only be a thin veneer of religiosity. I think Bill Mayer actually said it best in the video that we just watched. There are some believers who are just auditing. They haven't actually signed up for the course. They are fans, but they're not necessarily followers. So what this means then um, is that the most, well, let me just say this. The most frightening part of this teaching, if you, if you caught it, is that these people, J Jesus says, are self-deceived. They're self-deceived. They, 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 they have no idea that they are standing outside of the kingdom. So, so they think that they're on a plane going to Paris in springtime, but in reality, they're on a flight to Winnipeg in January. You know what I'm saying? So they think they're going here, but they're ending up here at the end of the day. They're fully self-deceived. And what this means is that at least some of the harm that has been done by those who have done it in the name of Christ has been done by those who are counterfeit Christians. See, I don't know about you, but anybody can actually claim the title of Christian. But just because you attend a church, even Crosspoint, just because you attend Crosspoint or a church, or just because you have Christian parents, that doesn't make you a Christian. Neither does attending a Christian school. Neither does being part of a cultural Christian environment or being in a quote-unquote Christian nation or being raised Catholic or Anglican or Alliance or whatever. None of these things actually makes you a Christian just because you use the word Christian. It's a very easy term to use that a lot of people can say. All you have to do is fill in your medical form. If you're filling in your medical form, what's your religion? Christian. Now, just because there are counterfeits, though, it doesn't mean that we abandon the entire enterprise of Christianity. How many of you use money? Anyone like to use money? Yeah, come on, don't be shy, it's okay. You need to buy toilet paper, right? Okay, you use money. You like to use that. Well, at the end of the day, we all know that there are counterfeit 20s out there. There are counterfeit $100 bills out there. But just because there are counterfeit $100 bills out there doesn't mean that we stop using money. We just happen to know that there are counterfeits out there, but we also know that there are genuine, real $100 bills out there. So if we assume, oh, shoot, I love this guy. Give him a <clears throat> uh, What is that? No, it's water. <laughs> um, if we assume that all of Christianity is bad because some members are bad, we commit what philosophers call, or logicians call, the fallacy of composition. Let me explain the fallacy of composition. The fallacy of composition is when you conclude that because some part of something is a certain way, that the entire thing is that way. All right, so if you buy a jug of milk and it's sour, would you automatically assume that all milk out there is sour? No, you wouldn't. You just know that that jug of milk is sour. If you go look at a wall and you see that one brick is blue, would you assume that the entire wall is blue? No. Why? Because that's a logical fallacy. It's the fallacy of composition. Um, it's inconsistent with wrong deductive reasoning. Sadly, it's the worst versions of Christ followers that are getting all the headlines. An example of this is Westboro Baptist Church in Topeka, Kansas. Um, if you know anything about this church, you've ever seen them online, you would assume that they are pretty much against everything. Uh, 
I mean, they show up in the news all the time. They picket and they protest funerals from Michael Jackson to soldiers in Iraq. Years ago, they, they picketed Heath Ledger's funeral because he had starred in Brokeback Mountain. I mean, they just picket everything. And if you go over, I don't, I'm not even going to tell you to go to their website because it's hateful. It's awful. I would encourage you to go there. Now, you probably are. But the question is, when you think of groups like this, and they appear in the news so many times, the question is, how did so few people get to speak for so many? Because here's the thing, is faithful saints don't make the headlines. Good Christians don't boost ratings. They don't increase the number of likes or the number of shares on social media. Good Christians are, are all but ignored by the media. They're kind of lame, you know? They love their neighbors. They feed the homeless. They welcome the outcasts. They're faithful from the, uh, to their spouses. They don't steal from their companies. They provide for their families. But it's the scandals, it's the picketers, it's the hate mongers who end up in the news. But more often than not, these, these ones are the counterfeits. They're not the genuine article. And it's a logical fallacy that assume, to assume that these ones can actually represent all of Christianity. It's a logical fallacy. Well, here's a third consideration. The third consideration is this. The church is full of people who are becoming. The church is full of people who are becoming. See, the ejection of harm, uh, it often assumes that all Christians should live up to what they believe. But it overlooks the reality that different people are at different places along their spiritual journey. And it also overlooks the reality that different people have different starting points along their spiritual journey. So some people in the body of Christ or in Christianity start from really great homes, for example. They have loving parents, a great environment, values are taught, Christian beliefs are upheld, and that's their starting point. But other people in the body of Christ don't start from that. They, they just got out of prison, or they just got out of rehab, or they come from a very difficult family background, like myself. Very different starting point than, say, my wife Karen, who had a, a brilliant, beautiful starting point. We all have different starting points along the journey, and we're all at different places in the journey. So, Christians are not people who have arrived. Christians are people who are becoming. Nobody has arrived in this journey. Nobody is, nobody's going to do it perfectly. And this is why Christians, in fact, believe in grace. This is why Christians follow a Savior. This is why Christians look to God to change them from the inside out. It's because we are all <clears throat> becoming, and we've not arrived. Um, let me give you an example of this. Uh, if you were to open up your Bible and you were to look at Paul's letters, uh, you were to read Paul's letters, oftentimes uh, Paul begins by calling the church that he's writing to saints, which means holy ones, okay, um, the reason why they're called saints is not because of who they are, but what Christ has done for them. Christ, they've been made holy by Christ. But as you read through every one of the letters that Paul addresses, he's writing to Christians, Christ followers. He's writing to churches. But in every single one of those letters, there's issues that those Christians are dealing with. Um, it could be false teaching. It could be the way they treat each other. It could be uh, maybe their idolatries or their addictions or the rebellion that's going on within that church. It doesn't matter. The observation within the Bible itself is not that Christians are perfect and they have it all together and they have it all figured out. Rather, the, the general observation as you read Paul's letters is that Christians are becoming. They're becoming. They haven't arrived. 
Now, this doesn't, of course, justify bad behavior that's done by uh, those who claim to be Christians. It does not justify it in any way. But it does help to explain it and explain why it is. Here's a, uh, let, let me bring this home today, okay? I, I want to talk specifically about Crosspoint Church um, because I think it's important to do that. Crosspoint is a church, you know, if you're just checking us out, maybe you've been here for just a little while. Um, Crosspoint is a church where there are no perfect people. We are a perfecting people. We are a maturing people. But there are no perfect people here. And that's okay. As a matter of fact, we believe it's okay not to be okay. We don't believe it's okay to stay there, but it's okay to not be okay. And you could be in part of our Crosspoint Church community, and you can be anywhere along that spiritual continuum. And we want to say you're welcome here. We're glad you're here. As a matter of fact, you belong here. Um, we are being renewed day by day by God's grace and by God's power. We're becoming more and more like him as we learn to surrender to him and trust him to give us the power to change. But I'll say this about our church community is we are not a country club of shiny, happy, pretty people who've got it all together. We aren't. We are a Holy Ghost hospital where broken, messed up people can come, admit their failures, find grace at the foot of the cross, and receive the new life and power of the Holy Spirit. This is who we are. I had to say that. Here's a fourth consideration. Harm is the contradiction of Jesus' teachings. It's not the outcome. Harm is the contradiction of Jesus' teachings. It's not the outcome. Jesus teaches us, if you, if you read the teachings of Jesus, he teaches us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. He says, blessed are the meek. He says that the first should be the last. He says that the way to the top through his kingdom, the way they get to the top to his kingdom is actually through the servant's entrance. It's not by clamoring and climbing towards the top and beating other people down. Jesus taught we should feed the poor, we should clothe the hungry, we should help the orphan and the widow. We should love our neighbors. And these things are what Jesus himself modeled for us. This is the way that, that Jesus himself lived. And so all the atrocities committed by Christians throughout the ages, they run contrary to the life of Jesus. They run contrary to the teachings of Jesus. They contradict his teachings. They are not the outcome of his teachings. So if Jesus taught hatred or if Jesus promoted harm, which he did not, then his followers would be acting consistently with his teachings. But as it is, when Jesus' followers live inconsistent with Jesus' teachings, we don't call Jesus into question. When Jesus' followers live inconsistently with Jesus' teachings, we call Jesus' followers into question. And they should be called into question. So I, I just want to take a moment. I, I, want to, I want to talk about the outcome of Jesus' teachings. I want to focus on there for just a minute and zoom in on that. I want you to consider this question this morning. Consider this question. Do the outcome of Jesus' teachings lead to a better world or to a worse world than the outcome of the atheist worldview? I'll ask that question again. Do the outcome of Jesus' teachings, okay, do they lead to a better world or to a worse world than the alternative worldview, i.e. atheism? You see, as it turns out, Jesus provides um, a picture or answers that atheism itself cannot provide. So how do we treat people? How do we respond to people who disagree with us? How do we treat our enemies? What is the, what is the grand vision we have for human relationships? These are the questions I think most of us are asking. Jesus' answer to that question is this. It's love. It's servanthood. It's sacrifice. 
It's generosity, okay? It's giving, right? It's other focus, other centric. And I, and I, would, I would argue this morning, I would ask you to entertain this question, is, is that this is a very different narrative than atheism, a very different narrative. Now, if you're an atheist and you're part of Crosspoint and you're here and all that, we love you. Come on a journey with us. We're glad you're here. But I wanna, I'm, not, I'm not talking about atheists. I'm talking about the atheist worldview. Okay, I want to I talk about the atheist worldview this morning. Okay? See, the atheist Darwinian, Darwinian narrative rests on this principle. The principle is known as survival of the fittest. That's one of the underlying principles that uh, governs this belief system. In this framework, in a survival of the fittest framework, in this narrative, okay, killing and exclusion of weaker groups actually makes sense. They are actually necessary for the betterment of a species. So let me just, again, quote Richard Dawkins. He's a fundamentalist atheist, uh, the late Richard Dawkins, uh, for the third time in this series. But, but I think he just does such a great job of capturing this worldview. Here's what Richard says. He says, in the universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces, and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. If, if, and I say if, you are a consistent atheist, then that means, in the grand scheme, atrocities are not morally wrong. Atrocities are the natural outcome of this worldview. They are the outcome of this narrative. Okay? I want to argue this morning that Jesus offers us a better narrative. A better narrative. So I'm not, I'm not, this isn't a conversation about the reasonableness of the belief in Christ. This is an argument about beauty. This is an argument about what seems to be better. And that I think intrinsically in our own hearts we would say, yeah, this is, this is maybe perhaps better. Jesus offers us a more beautiful better narrative. And so I want you to imagine this. The biblical narrative is this. It's that all people, all people on this planet have intrinsic value because they are created in the image of God. It doesn't matter your gender. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. It doesn't matter your country of origin, your ability, or your disability. It doesn't matter what your beliefs are. Because you are created in the image of God, you are an image bearer, okay? And because you are an image bearer, God requires that we treat you, we treat everybody with dignity, with love, with respect. We are to treat people as God himself would treat them. And because God himself is love, and because we are followers of Jesus, and, and because we are, believe in love, and because we want to represent God to the world, we too must love. We feed the poor. We fight. For orphans and widows. We care for the weak and for the vulnerable. We love our enemies. We pray for those who persecute us. This is the narrative that Jesus paints for all the world. And I want to argue that it's, it's a more beautiful narrative. And I want you to imagine that and consider that. You know, for example, it actually, it actually wasn't a secular Darwinist who fought for the abolition of slavery. Who fought for the abolition of slavery? I mean, the, at the time when the abolition of slavery started to come about in 1833 through the act of emancipation in Great Britain, at that time, generally speaking, slavery was pretty much accepted throughout the world. It was general practice. It had been general practice for hundreds, even thousands of years in different nations. 
So it, it wasn't a secular Darwinist who stood up and said, you know what, this is a bad idea. We should stop this. No, it was Christian activists like William Wilberforce in Great Britain and John Woolman in America. When Christians began to work for the abolition of slavery, they didn't do it because of some vague sense of human rights. They didn't do it because they thought, oh, this may one day be, in fact be good for the economy. They did it because slavery flew in the face of the Christian teaching that all people are created equal, that all people matter to God, that all people have value because, and intrinsic worth because they're created in the image of God. And in fact, when the British passed the Act of Emancipation in 1833, they had no beneficial reason to do it. And this is really important. They were, they're not going to get any benefit from passing this Act of Emancipation. In fact, they created economic suicide by doing it. Because if they're going to pass the Act of Emancipation, that means they had to free all of the slaves in the colonies. And if you free all of the slaves in the economies, every one of those slave owners had to be paid for those slaves. And essentially, when they passed that act of emancipation in 1833, what they had to do is they had to give up one half of the annual income of all of Great Britain just to make it happen. They gave up one half of their income. Why? Because they believed it was wrong based on the, what they read in the Bible. They did, they, they did it because they believed all people, including slaves, were made in the image of God, and they were deeply valued by God just like anybody else, and therefore it was wrong to own them. To recap, harm, harm was done as a contradiction to Christ's teachings. It was not ultimately the outcome of his teachings. And I'm, at this point this morning, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that you have begun to see that what many philosophers have begun to see on both sides of this objection, okay, on the Christian side, on the atheist side of the objection. Most are beginning to agree that this objection is actually a trivial objection. It doesn't mean that the harm that was done in the name of Jesus is trivial. That harm is wrong. It was horrific. It's indefensible, okay? But what they argue is that the objection itself is trivial. See, in, 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 in philosophical terms, um, logicians' terms, a trivial objection is when you hyper-focus on a less significant point in order to avoid the main point in an argument. Okay, so it's like saying a restaurant is bad because you went there, a light bulb was burnt out, but you didn't actually eat what was on the menu. Okay, it's a trivial objection in the grand scheme of what needs to be argued. So the behavior of Christ followers or counterfeit Christ followers is actually not the main point. The main point is whether or not there's a God. And the main point is whether or not Jesus was in fact true. And the main point ultimately for believers in Christ is what do we do with the resurrection of Jesus Christ? That's actually the main point. And this is a, a trivial objection. Again, it doesn't mean that what happened was trivial. It just means that in the grand scheme of arguing and, and debating on this issue, um, it is trivial. Well, here's the final consideration this morning then. The final consideration is this, is that the harm is sometimes overstated. The harm is sometimes overstated. So over the centuries, much harm has been done in the name of Christ. That is undeniable fact. It is true. Uh, some of the more common examples that are often talked about are, are the Rome, Romans' early con conquests, uh, what happened with the Crusades, uh, religious persecutions of the Inquisition, and of course the Salem witch trials. These are the ones that are the, the, the greater numbers that people are often talking about what Christians have done in the name of Jesus. Much harm has been done. But I want to say this morning is that, is that the problem is, is that the nature of those atrocities is often overstated, and the extent of those atrocities is often overstated. 
And let me explain what I mean by that. Let me talk about the nature of these atrocities, okay? Uh, brutalities like Rome's conquest or the Crusades or the Inquisitions, a lot of times people talk about it and they say they're, they're, they're simply Christians trying to conquer the world and make the world Christian. And look what they did in trying to make the world Christian. Um, but it's really an overstatement of what's really going on. They were not simply Christians trying to conquer the world. A lot of these were, were actually complex geopolitical wars that weren't completely religious in nature. And oftentimes what happened is the Christian message or the Christian teaching was hijacked to give greater merit to these political or national agendas. Okay? Uh, this, it's, it's what's called transcendentalizing. They transcendentalize these political efforts. So uh, you have this Christian framework that's kind of wrapped around this desire to expand and to grow and to take back land, etc., etc. And, and this Christian framework around it, it transcendentalized the movement. In other words, it gave the movement greater merit. It gave it greater meaning because, the, my goodness, there's a higher principle behind this, a higher purpose behind what we're trying to do in the name of Jesus, right? So it, it, it gave greater meaning to this expansion. But these were never as simple as Christians killing people in the name of Jesus or Christians trying to conquer the world or make the world more Christianist. Okay, Christian-ish is, is often what is touted. And it's just generally speaking not true. So, so that's the nature of the harm. And, and the nature of the harm is often overstated. And, and I think it would be worthwhile to actually go back and, and to, to research and look at it. And we've given you lots of information, notes in your bulletin there to look at some of the books and some of the things that we're pointing towards to say, okay, yeah, maybe the nature is overstated. But... Let me talk about not just the na nature, but the extent. I want to talk about the numbers, okay? Um, what has also been exaggerated are the number of people who were actually killed in these events. Um, some will say, oftentimes people will say, oh, millions of people were killed in the Crusades. But at the end of the day, that actually would be impossible for a couple of reasons. Number one is, is they didn't have modern weaponry back then. It's like archers and swords and horses, okay? So it's not like you could just decimate whole populations very easily and very quickly. And as a matter of fact, the world's population wasn't that big back then. There were only, there were probably less than 500 me million people before 1000 uh, AD. So really, if you po killed that many people, the world would have really noticed, okay? Most uh, people who, who've investigated these matters is to say, okay, if you add up the Crusades and the Inquisition and the witch trials all together, you actually get about 200,000 people that were, that were slain during this time. Um, so there is exaggeration. Now, again, I don't think that reducing the numbers makes the problem go away. These things happened, and they happened in the name of Jesus, and they were horrible, and they were wrong, and they contradicted Jesus' actual teaching. But is it a reasonable objection against belief in God. Remember, I've stated up to this point that it's actually seen as a trivial objection at the end of the day. But the late Christopher Hitchens, um, in his book, uh, God is Not Great, he argues that religious faith does not cause people to behave in a more kindly or civilized manner. And he argues that the more devout or fundamentalist a person's belief, the worse of an offender he or she becomes. So here's what Christopher says. He says, as I write these words and as you read them, people of faith, you guys, okay, <clears throat> are in their different ways planning your and my destruction and the destruction of all the hard-won human attainments that I have touched upon. Religion poisons everything, everything. And so that, is, it, is this true? Is this a reasonable objection? Does religion poison everything? Um, 
what's interesting, again, is, is, as I pointed out, is, is this is actually a trivial objection that dodges the main arguments. And, and as you read through Hitchens, you actually find this in his book. He's, he's, he's dodging things a lot. He doesn't actually get to the real matters. But let's entertain his argument. Does religion poison everything? Well, as it turns out, if, if we're measuring, if, 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 we, if we're to go down this, this argument and this line of argument, if we're to measure the amount of harm that has been done, atheistic regimes have done actually far worse than Christian ones. Let me just give you a very quick overview of uh, what took place over a period of 100 years by atheistic re regimes. Okay, so the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, they killed 2 million of their own people, communist atheist regimes. Stalin killed 20 million people through mass slayings in labor camps. Hitler killed 6 million people. And Mao exterminated an estimated of 50 to 70 million of his own people. Um, and these are not exaggerated numbers. Uh, they're real, actual numbers. Um, and interestingly, interestingly uh, Hitchens and the New Atheists, they try to get around these numbers with different explanations. One is to state that... Uh, these perpetrators of this violence actually learned how to do this from religion. That's one of the arguments. Or to say that these regimes were essentially religions. They, they called themselves atheists, communists, but at the end of the day, they were really religions. Um, and Hitchens even goes far as to argue that Hitler was a Christian, um, which is really ridiculous if you read um, good histories on Hitler. He was not a Christian. Um, he didn't like Christians, but he would like to use Christians. If it's true that the harm done by Christians presents a reasonable argument against God, and I don't think it does, then we need to compare and contrast the differences in these numbers, which I don't think we need to, but I'm doing it anyway. Dinesh D'Souza takes up this cause in his book, What's So Great About Christianity? And, and it's a bit of a response to uh, the uh, Dawkins, Harris, and Hitchens. And let's look at his comparison. He compares the two numbers. Okay, He says, religion-inspired killing simply cannot compete with the murders perpetrated by atheist regimes. He says, I recognize that population levels were much lower in the past, and that it's much easier to kill people today with sophisticated weapons than it was in previous centuries with swords and arrows. Even taking higher population levels into account, atheist violence surpasses religious violence by staggering proportions. Here's a rough calculation. The world's population rose from around 500 million in 1450 AD to 2.5 billion in 1950. So that's a five-fold increase. Taken together, the Crusades, the Inquisition, and the witch burnings killed approximately 200,000 people. Now, adjusting for the increase in population, that's the equivalent of about 1 million deaths today. Even so, these deaths caused by Christian rulers over a 500-year period amount to only 1% of the deaths caused by Stalin, Hitler, and Mao in the spaces of two decades. Their numbers are 100 million, okay? 1%. Now, it's not a good argument either way, okay, at the end of the day. But this also just demonstrates that it's an even worse argument, okay? As it turns out, non-Christian regimes have done far more harm. And why is that? Well, I, I, would, I would want you to consider this morning what I said earlier about the narrative. And I really do believe that Jesus paints a more beautiful narrative for humanity. And this is part of the reason why many of us follow him eagerly. Sometimes... Um, Another final thought is sometimes we often focus on the harm that has been done by Christians, but we ignore the help that Christians have given to the world in which we live in. We've ignored the great good that Christianity has brought to the world. 
And again, the good doesn't often get the headlines. It's often the harm that gets the headlines. Dr. James Kennedy, he wrote a book, What If Jesus Had Never Been Born? And he invites the reader to imagine a world where Jesus Christ and Christians does not exist. And he argues that the church has made more changes on earth for the good than any other movement or force in human history. You see, throughout the centuries, many Christ followers, Christians, have been deeply involved in helping the poor, in healing the broken, the disadvantaged, and the marginalized. It was Christians in early Rome who brought about the demise of slavery, gladiator fights, cannibalism, and infanticide, the murder of babies. It was Christian thought and Christian believers who said, this is wrong, this has got to stop, it's got to end. In early Rome, they, uh, they also increased the rights of women and the dignity of all human beings, slave or free. During the plagues, when millions and millions of people in Rome were losing their lives, being dumped into the streets and hauled off to be piled up, 10 people high in the temples, it was Christians who endured at the bedside of these dying and sick, plague-infested people. It was Christians who risked their own lives and died in their place as they tried to bring health to these millions and millions of people who lost their lives in early Rome. During the Middle Ages, the Christians were the first to establish hospitals. They were the ones who taught literacy. Most of the languages in the world today that have a written alphabet occurred because Christians brought them and gave them an alphabet. They created schools, orphanages, rehabilitation programs. And overall, you cannot ignore Christianity's contributions to democracy, art, music, literature, and higher standards of justice. If Jesus had never been born, if Christians had never been born, this core concept that we hold so deeply in our democratized nations, that all people were created equal, would have never come about. Or it would be hard to imagine how it could ever have come about in a world where everything is nasty and brutish and short, to quote Hobbes. It came about because of this core fundamental belief that Jesus taught and that sparked and grew and grew throughout the Roman Empire and to the ends of the earth. So while great harm has been done by people who claim to be followers of Jesus, we cannot ignore the great good that has also been done by those who claim to be followers of Jesus. Now, let me bring it home this morning. Circling the airport, landing the plane. Um, maybe you're here today, and, and you have been deeply hurt by followers of Jesus. It might not be you, it might be a family member, but you have seen churches or people who claim to be followers of Jesus cause great harm. And I would just like to say to you this morning that I'm sorry, I'm sorry that that happened. I can't apologize and ask for forgiveness for something somebody else has done. Only they can do that. But I can't say I'm sorry that it happened. And I can tell you even, with, I don't know the nature of what happened, but I can tell you that if something was done that is contrary to the life and teachings of Jesus, that God himself is equally pained and frustrated by it. My encouragement for you today is to not look to the affront and the harm that they have done, but to look to God himself. And I would say to you today that God is for you, that God is good, that God is love, 
And God is just. And ultimately, at the end of the day, God will bring all people to account for their behaviors and how they've lived here in this world. But God welcomes you into a healing and life-transforming relationship with himself. And God is not going to ignore what has happened in the past. But God is, is willing to embrace you and change you and transform you and invite you into relationship. Look to God himself. That's my encouragement. And let me speak specifically to believers in Christ. If you are a Christ follower here today, this morning, a believer in Christ, I simply want to ask you this question. I want you to ask this question about your own life. Does the message match the messenger? Does what you proclaim to be true align with who you are in your life? Are you a person of integrity? Is there consistency between your public world and your private world? Is there consistency between how you live and behave and what you believe? Jesus said these words in Matthew chapter 5. And he's speaking to the church, to his people. He says, you, you are the light of the world. And a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither you take a lamp and put it on a bowl. Instead, you put it on its stand. And it gives light to everyone in the house. And in the same way, in the same way, let your light shine before man that they might see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Does your life and the way you live your Christian life matter? It matters. And it matters to the world. And you are the body of Christ. You are the living, breathing representation of Jesus to the world. So live like it. And I'm not suggesting that you just try harder. I'm not suggesting you clean up your behavior. I'm not suggesting um, that you put on this veneer of religiosity. What I want to suggest to you today is if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, is that you surrender your life to God. And you let him change you from the inside out. That you live a transformative life. Because God's not into behavior management. God is into life transformation. And he changes us from the inside out. And you, in and of yourself, you do not have the capacity to truly live out this life. You do not. And if you try, you will fail. You've probably been doing that. But the promise of scripture is, is if you will surrender your life at the foot of the cross and you say, God, would you forgive me? And if you surrender your life before God and you say, God, I can't do this by myself. I need the power of your Holy Spirit to change me every single day, living in completely dependence on him. If you surrender your life before him, he will change you from the inside out so that you become more loving. You become more gracious. You become more good. You become more like Jesus. And when you become more like Jesus, you will be his representatives in the world. You will be a light for all the nations. And that's God's vision for us, Crosspoint. And I hope it's the vision that, that, that governs your life and who you are. Because we should be as affronted by hypocrisy as Jesus himself is. And we should seek to weed out every little bit of hypocrisy that we have in our own lives. Is the message matching the messenger? And I hope and I pray for each and every one of us that it does. Let's pray together.
just as we pause before our King Jesus, who is here, who sees us, who knows us, who loves us, who welcomes us. I want you to pause and consider these two questions. What is King Jesus asking you to do today? What is he saying to you? What is King Jesus saying to you today? And the second question is like it. It's simply, what am I going to do about it? What am I going to do about it? God, our heart's desire is that you would shine through us. You would shine among us. You would shine into this community and to the ends of the earth. And we acknowledge that in and of ourselves, we do not have the capacity to change. But you are the God who is making us capable. And we surrender our lives before you. We surrender our, our, our own uh, systems and ways of, of trying to earn our own salvation. Our self-salvation strategies, God, we lay them before you. And we say that we can't do it ourselves. But you can and that's your promise. And you will. That's your promise. So we surrender our lives afresh before you, Lord. We fall under the lordship of our king and his kingdom. We say, lead us. We fall under the power of our king and we say, help us. We thank you that you're faithful and you're good. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope it's helped you in your spiritual journey and it's helped you draw closer to God. Let me tell you a little bit about us. Crosspoint gathers as one church on Sundays in Northeast Edmonton. And you can find out our location and more about us by visiting our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca. We also meet throughout the week throughout Edmonton in what we call home groups. These are smaller communities of learning, laughter, community, uh, transformation. We, we think that the journey of faith was never intended to be an independent exercise. It's, it's something that we do together. So please visit our website and find out how you can get connected to a home group near you. If you listen to our podcast regularly, why not make it shareable? You could like us on iTunes or share our podcast with other people. But more importantly, we hope you will get connected with other people and talk about what you've learned. Again, hey, thanks for listening. We pray you'll experience Christ's love in a very real and profound way this week.